Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys. Today's episode is sponsored by Marcy Dermansky Editorial Services. Marcy is now offering private editorial services to writers just like you. Is your manuscript in a box? Is it in the back of a drawer? Is it buried in the dark recesses of your computer? Is it uh, buried in your backyard? Writer and editor Marcy Dermansky would like to help you. She is the author of the critically acclaimed novels Bad Marie and Twins. She's won awards for her own work. And better yet, she's helped clients get their books published and win awards of their own. For more information, please visit MarcyDermansky.com. She's an editor. She can edit you. Go and hire her. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right. Okay, right. everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is produced in a domestic environment. This is currently an object of your consciousness. Thank you for tuning in. I'm Brad Listy here in Los Angeles, California. It's nice to be with you. My guest today is Kelsey Parker. She is the author of a new novella called Lillian's Balcony. Uh, Lillian's Balcony. It's available now from Rose Metal Press. It's, uh, it's set at Falling Water, the Frank Lloyd Wright masterpiece. So it's kind of a, a historical fiction, imagining actual people in their environment. And in this case, the environment happens to be a Frank Lloyd uh, Wright masterpiece. So I had a great conversation with Kelsey. She and I are going to be talking in just a minute. Before we, uh, before we get going, a few orders of business. If you would like a free audiobook download from Audible, please visit audibletrial.com slash other people. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash other people. You go there, you can get yourself a free audiobook when you sign up for a free trial. Also, uh, quickly, a reminder about the archives of this program uh, and Other People Premium. Here's how it works. Uh, I think most of you know this. You get the most recent 50 episodes of this podcast for free. doesn't cost you a penny. Uh, but if you would like to access everything, all 250-something episodes, including conversations with authors like George Saunders, Cheryl Strayed, Ben Marcus, Sam Lipsight, Roxane Gay, Sheila Hetty, and so on and so forth. All you have to do is sign up for premium. It's $2. Two bucks a month. And uh, the easiest way 
To sign up is to download the free Other People app. This podcast has its own app, which is available now for your iPhone, iPad, iPod Touch, or Android device. You get the app. The app is free. You can listen to the most recent 50 episodes in the app at no cost. And then you can also sign up for premium right there inside of the app uh, to get access to the rest. It's very easy to do. And uh, the great thing is once you have the app, you don't have to do anything anymore. New episodes automatically upload to the app. You can download episodes to listen to offline uh, and you can access premium content and the full archives all right there within the app. So please go get the free app and then sign up for premium for two bucks uh, a month and uh, support the program. I would appreciate that. So uh, what's next? I got an email this morning from a regular listener uh, named Stefan who writes, Hi, Brad. I've uh, picked up on a strong current in recent episodes of your hesitation about publishing your new work. I know it's been talked about for a while. I just listened to the Susan Strait episode, episode 117, where your novel imploded. But it's starting to feel like a, a fait accompli. At one point, you mentioned having written two or three novels. He's writing this in all caps. Two or three novels since your first that have gone to the scrap heap. That's astonishing. I know my words don't mean anything, uh, but you have the gift not only of being a good writer, but the gift of an audience and a venue to publish, and you've produced the work. One wonders if you have something like a duty to show the audience, uh, to show that audience your work. I worry that talking with some of these writers who think it's okay to spend five years on something and then throw it away is sort of adding fuel to the fire. My vote is for publication, for all of it. I think that would ultimately be more freeing, whatever the outcome, than throwing it away. All best, Stefan. So thank you, Stefan. I appreciate the email. Uh, how do I feel about this? You know, I think that, you know, showing one's work is, is very important if you're going to be an artist of any kind. Uh, but at the same time, I don't want to waste people's time. I don't want to rush work into print that isn't uh, ready, in my estimation. Uh, I only want to share my very best stuff. And that's the balancing act. Right? Like, don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good, or whatever it is. Isn't that a saying? <laughs> it's all about trying to figure out when I'm being a perfectionist to my detriment and when I'm being a perfectionist to my benefit. or exhibiting, uh, like, perfectionistic tendencies. So that's my struggle, you know. I'm trying to produce a book that satisfies me, that standard, you know, that satisfies my personal standards. Uh, but I also uh, want to make sure that I'm being honest with myself and that I'm not hiding behind that or using it as a shield or some sort of excuse. Because, you know, I feel like there can be a strong emotional drive to publish for uh, many of us. Whether it's an ego thing, you just want to see yourself in print, uh, or it's a financial thing. You need to sell the work so you can make some money. So you push it out there before it's ready. Uh, or, you know, often it's some combination of both. And uh, for me, I think I would just rather publish when I feel uh, really strongly that A, I have something that I really need to say. And B, that I feel that I've said, uh, said it to the very best of my ability. And then uh, recently, I've been talking uh, with my agent and a couple of other uh, writer friends. And, you know, I'm coming to this realization that part of uh, this long struggle is rooted in, uh, in identity. 
in creative identity. Which is to say, you know, when I started out as a writer, when I had my earliest inklings of wanting to be a writer, I thought I would be a novelist. That was the goal. To write fiction. And so I did that. I wrote a novel. Uh, I was fortunate to get it published. And uh, the novel was very autobiographical. And then in the intervening years, I've been doing all this work uh, online in an editorial capacity and so on. I started doing this uh, podcast, which eats up a lot of my time, uh, but which I enjoy a great deal. And then when I've tried to write fiction, I've often uh, found myself unsatisfied with it because uh, I feel like I'm not saying what I really want to say somehow. And I feel like my fiction tends to be an expression of my own personal stuff, which I guess all art is. But uh, what am I trying to say? I think what I've been trying to come to grips with for, you know, perhaps for too long, is that I, I think I just want to write nonfiction. And I think that's closer to who I am uh, as a writer and an artist in terms of my, like, true identity as a creative person. And that, you know, and that's not a value judgment on fiction writers or fiction, broadly speaking. It's, it's simply an admission of what my interests are. And I think I've alluded to that uh, on the podcast many times before. Uh, it's kind of insane <laughs> because it's something that I think I've, I've known for a long time and yet I've continued to try to write fiction. It's like this slow motion realization process that probably everyone else can see clearly but me. Uh, so let me read you something that my agent, uh, Aaron Hosier, wrote to me recently in an email. Uh, it sort of hit it on the head for me as we were going back and forth about this. She said that, uh, quote, nonfiction people write their way toward consciousness and fiction writers tell stories of the projected unconscious. End quote. So, I don't know if that tells the whole tale, but it made sense to me when I read it. You know, fiction writers are mining their uh, subconscious or their unconscious mind, and, some, you know, and often their lives, but they're digging deep in, in these ways that are often intuitive and creating their narratives, whereas nonfiction writers are often working their way uh, towards some sort of consciousness or uh, epiphany or insight uh, right there on the page in what is obviously a personal way. It's hard to fully define, but, you know, I think that's pretty much it for me. And I, I should also say that I think this podcast is part of that reckoning process because obviously I'm as interested uh, or even more interested in the writers behind the stories than I, than I am in the stories themselves. That's just me. It's just my weird thing. I want to know what's going on with people. <laughs> and uh, personally, I want to find a way uh, creatively slash artistically uh, to tell you what's going on with me, which I think is what I've been doing with this program and these uh, rambling monologues for the past two and a half years. And it's what I'm going to do in my next book when it's done. God willing. I'm just going to tell you what's going on somehow. But of course, it's it's more complicated than that because it's about getting the words in the right order and finding uh, the proper narrative architecture for what I want to say, etc. So thank you, uh, Stefan, for sending that email. If you guys would like to send word, the uh, email address for this program is letters at otherpeoplepod.com. And you can also leave me a voicemail over at the show's official website, which is otherpeoplepod.com. Dot com. Okay. 
Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. My guest once again is Kelsey Parker. Her novella, Lillianne's Balcony, is available now from Rose Metal Press. Very pleased to have Kelsey here, and I hope you enjoy our conversation. Here she is, folks. This is Kelsey Parker, and her new book once again is called Lillianne's Balcony. I am in my office at Indiana University South Bend. Okay. And I a Hoosier. I was going to say, I'm, well, yeah, actually, technically a Titan. <laughs> um, I mean, yeah, Hoosier, sorry. Yeah, Hoosier would be Indiana, the state. Um, I, because I'm at a regional campus of Indiana University, we actually have a different, you know, mascot or whatever, or whatever they call that thing. So at Indiana Bloomington, they're Hoosiers, and we are Titans. But you're right, Indiana in general, I'm sure. a Hoosier. I'm, are you from there? I'm from there. I grew up part of my childhood in Indiana. So. Oh, you did? Yeah. Oh. I went to Carmel Where? High School down the road. Oh, that's right down the road. Yeah. Oh. So I, know the, I know the terrain. How Are you a uh, childhood? Like, did you grow up in Indiana, or is this just where you've moved to to work as an adult? Yeah, I moved here in 2006, but not from very far away, from um, Cincinnati, Ohio. Okay. And um, so I actually go through Carmel pretty much every time I'm, you know, traveling from South Bend to Cincinnati to see family. Um, and actually before that, I mean, I landed there in Cincinnati in junior high, but um, my dad worked for Procter & Gamble and then moved around to, like, we lived in a bunch of places before I got to Cincinnati, like, Connecticut, Chicago, Pittsburgh, New Jersey. Um, okay, so I mean, just like job-related transfers, promotions type thing. Is that why you removed? Yeah. Okay. Yep. Not like witness protection program or anything fancy. <laughs> it started to feel like that at some point, but I trust the story they told that he was just getting promotions and transfers. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so like moving around. I did a little bit of moving, not quite that much as a kid, but I think that that was part of the uh, formula that made me writerly like when you i mean you, you move that many times and you have to kind of 
reinvent yourself and, and start from scratch at that many different schools. Like, did you feel, or do you feel in retrospect that that experience was somehow formative for you creatively? Yeah, totally. In fact, um, I wrote about it on a college application. It was <laughs> so formative. <laughs> um, but yeah, just, I mean, I'm also quite tall. Um, and I always was like, the well, how, t- how tall are you? I'm almost six feet tall. Okay. Yeah, my, my wife is like five, ten and a half. So yeah, when she wears, yeah. when she wears heels, I'm like, it's like Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman back in the day. You know, I'm like, I feel sure. <laughs> I'm impressed that she wears heels. Like I tend to avoid them. Well, um, I'm five. I'm like almost six feet. So like if we're like flat footed, I barely edge her out. But if the, heels, yeah. then it's, you know, I just have to deal with it. I think she does it just to fuck with me. <laughs> Well, wish I were so brave, but I, yeah, I actually went, um, barefoot at my wedding, um, which was in part because I just didn't want like extra heel in part because I also have kind of big feet and had a hard time finding shoes that looked like anything I would want to wear. And partly because Julia Roberts had just gone barefoot and I was like, well, she can do this. I can. It's good enough for her. My wife, uh, my wife, I should say, now that I'm recalling, she wore sandals. I mean, we were married on the, on the coast and it was warm. So that made some sense, but uh-huh. uh, yeah. I, did, I didn't, I don't think I wanted in the wedding photos to have her like have her, you know, her elbow on my shoulder, like resting on my shoulder or whatever. Yeah. Straight. <laughs> setting, right. Which set, many... setting her glass of champagne on my shoulder. as she Exactly. That's what many, many of my high school dance photos look like that. <laughs> So what is it, what was it like for you to be a tall girl? Cause like, uh, you know, when, regardless of how tall you eventually become as a, as a, uh, adult, you know, girls, yeah. girls grow faster than boys. They always shoot up first. And there's this weird period of like adolescence where the girls are like a, a, a head taller than the boys. But for you, um, you know, you must've gone through that. And then you, I mean, to be almost six feet tall as a woman is a, is a, a bit unusual. Yeah. So what was it? I mean, does it, did it, was it difficult to be that tall? I always kind of think it's sort of empowering. Like I'd rather be tall than short. Yeah. I mean, the nice thing is, um, you know, my dad's almost six, four and he was always sort of of the mind that, you know, taller is better. And, um, so he would tell me that, but I don't know, you still go to school and tower over people and feel self-conscious and, um, and especially like we were talking about with moving around a lot, and constantly having to show up as like the new girl and the tall girl. And I was also really shy. I don't know. I was, um, I have no idea if this matters or not that I was the firstborn, but somehow it feels, you know, relevant that I just was kind of quiet and liked to sort of watch, but then, you know, being tall made me sort of conspicuous. I felt like, and, um, so, um, I was going to say yeah. Yeah, to, to be shy, but also to be like towering over everyone is, yeah, <laughs> that's not the, not exactly the ideal combination, <laughs> right, like, right? like physically, but you know, physically striking people notice you and then you're like, listen, I just want to blend, but you can't blend. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but the nice thing too, I think was that, um, I was pretty athletic. My dad was also really athletic and I think he didn't know what to do with me other than take me outside and like throw football with me or kick a soccer (laughs) ball. And, um, so we did a lot of that and I, um, and I got pretty good and, um, you know, being tall is an advantage in sports and it's an advantage. It's an advantage in life. Like I read these stories about how, like, if you're tall, 
you're much more likely to be promoted. Like CEOs tend to be tall. It's very, yeah. it's very rare. I mean, then again, there's always like the Napoleons and like that sort of thing in history where the, sure. you have these kind of, uh, you know, the reverse, but usually it's like, you know, if you're taller, people think you have more command. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't know. Have you ever felt that? Like, do you feel like you ever get treated better because you're tall? Um, um I don't know. I, I remember when I started teaching high school right out right when I finished college that was the first thing I did I taught high school English and um I don't know I wasn't really super great at controlling a classroom but um but if I had anything I had my height (laughs) I tried to use that (laughs) as like the only attempt of controlling you know these like teenage boys and girls who were you know almost my height too but um I don't know I mean I could sort of be maybe a little more intimidating that way but um, you know what I found when yeah, I was, I mean, when I was teaching, oh, I'm sorry, I, yeah. don't, I don't mean to intrude, but I was just, it was just hearkening back to my teaching days. And I remember I had a, a particularly unruly comp class and it was like, it was just hard to get them to settle down at the beginning, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I remember one day I like walked in and I was just like trying to talk and they were just really loud. And then finally I just stood up on my desk in silence, which... <laughs> Like, I mean, just like, you know, just to be weird and like it totally yeah. worked, but I didn't say anything. I just stood up, which is sort of an attempt at, you know, for me to become twice as tall as I was. Yeah. <laughs> and maybe more yeah. physically imposing. But I think if you just, I think always like the, the element of surprise is a good idea. And then just yeah. being, being slightly weird without going overboard could potentially work for you. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. No, that's a really good strategy. I, and it's flashing me back. I remember standing on my desk at some point when I taught high school. Now, I don't know why I, I, I feel like it had something to do with teaching Romeo and Juliet, but I, this was a long time ago. It, it wasn't me trying to get control of the class at that point. They, oh man, so they, are you, are they you, were controlling uh, me by then. Are you, uh, are you a disciplinarian as a teacher? I mean, have you gotten better at it over the years? Uh, no, no. I, I realized pretty early on I was never going to get better at it because I had no interest in it. I just had no interest in constantly saying like, you know, sit down, tuck your shirt in. Put your throw your gum away, be quiet. It just seemed like the most boring thing to do all day long. Um, yeah. And not to mention, um, put your weed away and <laughs> other things that came out in the classroom. There, people, people take their people. Your students take their weed out in the classroom. Well, one person actually lit up in the back of the classroom, and okay. I was like, "What? What? What's that?" You know, I'm like <laughs> smelling something, and I'm like, "Oh my god!" And um, where and where was this at? This was at uh, a high school in Cincinnati, okay. um, and um, yeah, it was it was an interesting first year there. Another student did like this whistling thing, but like wouldn't I didn't know who it was. Just someone in the class would just do this low whistle, and everyone was kind of silent. And then they like, but they wouldn't stop. They kept doing it and no one was going to tell on him and he was not going to reveal. And so then that's, you know, there's this humiliating thing where the assistant principal or whatever had to come into my classroom and keep them all after and basically do the disciplining for me. And I just was like, okay, okay. It's time time to teach college students who are serious serious about their education. Yeah, I, 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 and, and and you know, I should say too that I never taught high school, which is a different beast. And like, it's a totally different beast. Yeah, I mean, because yeah. I remember being a high school student who probably tortured a few teachers, and yeah, and it's just like you're just—I don't know. I feel like there's something sort of 
uh, inhuman about high school in general. Like all that's the, the schedule, the constant schooling. There needs to be more like freedom or something. Like seven hours yeah. a day in the classroom, sitting there. Like that's not healthy. <laughs> no, no, I totally agree. I, I, it really became clear to me when I was when I was teaching. I felt like the whole system was somehow rigged against education, you know, starting with that, that just like class after class after class to then, I mean, you know, all of the things that are fun for students, but are constant classroom disruptions like, oh, now let's go have a pep rally and now let's vote for your homecoming court. And, you know, now let's, uh, I don't have a field trip to something. I don't know. Um, And so I just felt like I was constantly working, trying, you know, trying to educate in spite of the whole setup. (laughs) Right. Right. Well, uh, before we uh, continue further with the timeline, I I forgot to mention at the outset, because this is a first for me, and it's kind of funny, but uh, we should let people know that when I tried to call you for this interview, uh, I I got a hold of your ex-husband by accident because you you gave me the wrong number. (laughs) (laughs) So I I did have a brief conversation with him. He was startled that I was calling for you, and I couldn't figure out why, and it was kind of this funny thing. So. Um, yeah, and you started to tell. You told me you called this other number, and I'm sitting here thinking, do I tell him who we just talked to? <laughs> do I not? I'm just like, oh god. Yeah, so, I, was, I, was, yeah. I, I asked for you, and he was like, who's this? And I, you know, I was like, I'm just <laughs> yeah. calling for an interview, man. <laughs> this is the number I was given. <laughs> so, and just to just to clarify, that was like you guys had like an iPhone plan, and then there were two numbers. Yeah, and they were close, and I happened to call the wrong one. You gave me the wrong one by. Accident. I happened to give you the wrong one, and I constantly am afraid I'm doing that whenever I'm filling out forms or papers or whatever. I'm I'm like afraid I'm going to give the other one because it's kind of the main number on the plan, and um, well, you maybe, know, maybe it's so time, the maybe. only time so far that I know that I've that I've screwed up is this time. And it's <laughs> well, I'm glad I could be the first. And uh, have, have you considered possibly changing your number or anything just to like mitigate against this? Well, I, I will consider it now. <laughs> it's <almost> too late. <laughs> All right. So uh, just, I mean, you know, one or two, you, you have like the, the plan and you, you know, you sign up and they make you stay with them for X amount of time. So I was actually just planning to ride that out and hoping that, you know, this would not happen um, during that time, but it well, did. <laughs> well, I'm sorry I startled him. Hopefully, he'll yeah, hopefully hopefully he'll understand. Yeah. Uh, so okay. So Midwestern upbringing. Father sounds like uh, kind of a good Midwestern dad. You know, six four athlete. You were yeah. you were athletic, which is not always the case for uh, people who have a writerly bearing. Um, yeah, but, but sometimes is like, I mean, I feel like it's too easy to say, well, you know, writers are just book nerds who are uncoordinated and, you know, wear, yeah. wear glasses. And like, the truth is that literary history is people with a lot of writers who were, uh, you know, really good writers who also happen to be really good athletes, which is sort of an embarrassment of riches, you know, to be good at both. Like it almost feels like if you're a good writer, you should be a horrible athlete or just like completely <laughs> physically inept. <laughs> but you are not. You're a you're a commanding six foot tall collegiate athlete. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. Well, um yeah, but they did sort of compete with one another um in my sense of identity and stuff. I mean, I definitely grew up, um, you know, sort of, uh, bookish, but really the, my identity was uh, my sort of more public identity was as an athlete. Um, I was always doing 
sports um, and, you know, the three sport athlete in high school. And which, then did which like sports? The, which sports? Um, I did soccer, basketball, and softball. Okay. And, um, you know, in junior high, it was, I did some volleyball and I did track. And um, my soccer team traveled around the country. We were, um, you know, really competitive and played in a bunch of tournaments and just played all year long. Um, and, and also, I mean, I should say also when I was um, in sixth grade, I think this is also sort of, this sort of relates to my writerly identity too, is that I became, um, a goalie on my soccer team. And I was originally, you know, like I played front line and, um, much more of a participant on the field, but then they realized that like I was tall, but I wasn't as fast. I mean, like being tall, was not the great asset that it was when I was like in second grade. So by sixth grade, I was sort of slowing down, but I still had a good wingspan and was still athletic. So they put me in the goal and, uh, you know, you do a lot of, um, standing and thinking, and making up stories. <laughs> it's a lo- it's, are... I, I played soccer. Goalie is a lonely position, not only because of, you know, the nature of the game and the way that you have to stand back there and watch a lot of the action unfold, but also that like when somebody, you know, when you get scored on, yeah. it's, it's just you. <laughs> like, yeah. Everyone just exactly. kind of tur- everyone just kind of turns and looks at you. Yeah, right. I know. So it's like, you know, sort of nothing going on for most of the game and then all of a sudden it's like super high pressure and um you know, you do also get I mean, if you make a couple good saves, everyone like thinks you're their hero, which is nice too. But um so it probably contributed to some weird narratives in my head about myself in both directions. Um, just, just standing back there composing a masterpiece, like as exactly, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But uh, but again, like being being an athlete was my main identity as a kid, and so for as much as I read and sort of was interested in writing and the arts, I I didn't give myself permission to. I didn't think I, I I was like, no, I'm an athlete. I'm not an artist. And, um, and so it was really like more in my twenties when my, you know, athletic career as I'd known it, um, ended. I mean, I did play in college, play soccer in college. Um, where'd you go? And then, uh, Xavier university, which is the one in Cincinnati. Sure. And, um, so, um, yeah, so it was really in my twenties that I started like, realizing I might have, I, I might be able to sort of explore these other interests and sides of me. So, so yeah, they're, I mean, they're related, but they're also a bit in competition. Okay. So you weren't really showing as a writer until right. you got into your 20s. So late blue, like quasi late bloomer. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And was it just, was it merely, I mean, because you can't be a soccer goalie forever and, unless you're like at an Olympic level, you weren't that good. Right. You? Well, I won't say I wasn't that good, but no, I wasn't that good. <laughs> that's, I mean, you know, that's rare air for, I mean, for a, a woman uh, or a man, really, I guess, the, uh, is there women's professional soccer? And forgive me for not knowing if there is, but. Um, it, you know, it was just kind of starting um, in the 90s when I was finishing up. I mean, so it was a possibility. Um, I mean, not so much for me, but it was like, it was in the air um, and. Uh, the professional league was starting, and then I think it actually I don't know what happened with it if it like started then stopped then started again but um but certainly like the women's national team um you never you, know, got, that, you never got close to that did you ever try out for that or anything no, I didn't, but I was playing 
you know, against people or with people who, you know, were interested in that or pursuing that. I mean, so I was close enough. I mean, our team was actually like it was a division one team and we were, you know, ranked in the top 25 at some different points um, nationally. And, um, you know, so like I, I, and my coach knew people like, you know, they would spend summers doing training camps with um, some of these top women. Um, So, yeah, I mean, I, I knew of it, but I, uh, yeah, I wasn't going to be pursuing it. Was it hard? To, was it hard? I mean, because like you know, you're you're a good athlete your whole life. Um, you go, you know, through high school playing, and then you you go on to college to play, and then suddenly that ends. Uh, yeah. Was, was it sad to see it go away? Yeah, it it was, um, and in fact, I I didn't play my first year of college. Um, I went to Miami University. Um, outside of Cincinnati for my first year, and they did not have a soccer team. Um, and I didn't play, and and I really felt strange about myself. I was I suddenly you know I went from like doing sports all the time to like not doing any sports. I mean, I I played like I had a gym class that was ultimate frisbee. You know, like that was the extent of it. And um, I really liked. I mean, I, I was good at it because, again, being tall, I could catch, I could catch a lot of frisbee passes. But um, you know, it just I, I felt out of sorts. And um, so, actually, the the coach at Xavier, he had just gotten a job, and he had known of me from the area, um, from from playing in high school, and he called me up and recruited me. And and I, you know, I mean, it was kind of this moment of like, what do I do? Do I stay at Miami? Do I transfer and play soccer? And um, so I, anyway, it's kind of a long way of saying that like I had already sort of like ended and and had a chance to restart, and and did and I mean I was really glad to be able to do four years more of soccer and then I guess when it ended, I was pretty much ready for it to end um, and kind of move on. But then I would do like these intramural things that, um, again in my twenties, like when I was teaching high school and played on like a co-ed football you know two-hand touch football <laughs> rec league and um what position some indoor were, soccer. Were, were you quarterback what was happening no there no another guy was quarterback but i was like sort of the the go-to girl wide receiver um Good and hands. Uh, that makes sense you're a goalie you have good exactly hands. yeah yeah and you know it had this rule where every third play had to involve a girl in some way otherwise you know they might not involve girls at all and so sounds you know, like, it's, I like, like, it's I, like Vita. It's like Vita was, you know, keeping the yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So every third play, I get excited and like hopeful that he would, you know, pick me and throw it to me. And so um, anyway, but yeah, I mean, it, it was it was definitely weird. Um, and, to, and then what about the transition? Like, what about like you know that ends and then you start to get writerly in a serious way? Like, can you talk about how that unfolded? Um, yeah, you know, I mean, if anything good came out of teaching high school, um, it was that I started reading these, um, like pedagogy books about how to teach writing and reading. And, um, one of the ones, uh, I think it was by this guy called Tom Romano, um, talked about, uh, just basically the importance of writing with your students and kind of modeling it and making sort of creating a community of writers in the classroom. 
And so I said, I don't know. I started giving them these writing prompts, and then I would sit there, you know, busily writing with them. And um, so, so wait, wait, you do the assignments that you assign them? Yes. Wow, that's yes. interesting. And what's I, that? What's I can't this? say that I fin- like I brought them all to fruition, but if I was assigning them, you know, 15 minutes of writing in the classroom, I would sit at my desk and also be, and you know, and let them know that I was also writing the same in response to the same thing and you know, sometimes would share what I had written and, um, you know, it was sort of about, uh, taking away the authority position, even though, I mean, I'm, you're automatically still in that, but, you know, just showing them that like, Hey, I'm doing what you're doing too. Well, and, I was going to um, say, it's like, you're, I'm suffering with you. <laughs> it's like morale. Yeah. It's, it's, like, it's like a morale boost. It's, it's a, it builds a comradeship among the, uh, soldiers. Well, I, I dare say I tried to make it not look so much like suffering, but look how fun this can be. <laughs> as you're, as like a tear rolls down your cheek. I swear this is so fun. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, okay. So um, you're doing these writing prompts and was it, was there ever an, in, you know, an instance where you gave a prompt to the class and then you wrote something and then you're like, you know what, this is too personal. Like, or, or I'm, I've just revealed, mm. I've revealed something about myself that I don't want my students to know. I'm going to keep this to myself. Did that ever happen? Um, it did. And then I did. And we moved on. <laughs> oh, meaning what you just, you, you, you shared it or you didn't share it? No, no, no. Meaning like it did happen that I would sometimes write things that I didn't want to share. And then I just would not share them. And then oh. we would move on. So. And would, would your students inquire? Or would they be like, Hey, wait a minute. I just shared. Um, right. <laughs> no, I, no, they didn't necessarily expect me to share every single time. Um, and you know, they, they often, like to hear themselves talk and share. So, yeah. um, you know, it was, it was fine. I could just be discreet. I mean, if I let them know, if I were like, Oh man, I, I'd like to share this, but I just can't, then, you know, then they would freak out and like have a mutiny and be like, you must share, but I just would play it cool and they wouldn't know. Right. What they don't know can't hurt them. So did anything right. that you did in those experiences, uh, you know, from a teaching perspective, did anything that you wrote become, uh, published work? Oh, no, no, but it was practice, crucial practice. It was, yeah. Yeah. And it, I mean, and I don't know. I feel like that sort of then led to, um, there were a few other, um, faculty and couple guidance counselors who were also interested in writing. And we started a little writing group during, oh my God, this is just such an inhumane schedule. You know, I had seven, there were seven bells or whatever. And Ugh one little um, planning period and I would use that to meet with these folks and because it was like the best part of the day was sharing writing with them and getting feedback on stuff that I'd written and um, you know but it was just kind of a brutal schedule other you know to have three different preps and six different I don't know how people I don't know how teachers do it like seven classes consecutively every day with like a a group of like hormonal crazy teenagers (laughs) Yeah, I I don't I mean every time as a college professor that I even like consider complaining about my teaching load, I just think back to those days and I'm like, okay, you are not teaching three preps a day to 150 <laughs> hormonal high schoolers, yeah, like hormonal ingrates who don't even care. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so and like artistically, and you know, we talked about how moving around and you know this kind of uh, contradiction between your athletic self and your. Um, 
and your uh, introversion, you know, was, was kind of formative. But, like, do you have any kind of genetic history of artistry in your family? I mean, Procter & Gamble, um, probably not, like, your dad probably not, like, super artsy, or, or is that not the case? Right. Yeah, no, not super artsy. Um, what about your mom? Uh, um, you know, my mom, yeah, she she definitely had a lot to do with bringing um, books into the house. And she was always, um, she, uh, you know, in the early years was um, a stay-at-home mom, but would then do these interesting things, like was part of this, um, I forget what it was called, like this craft collaborative thing where they like a bunch of people shared a store and they would make things and sell them there. And um, she, she was very, creative and in, in, in a lot of ways that um that got uh that sort of were manifest in in the home or in these little crafts or whatever like she didn't formally get to pursue anything but she definitely is super creative in ways and um and she's a great champion of me i mean she's you know still like sends me like old stories that i wrote when i was six that she digs up from her archives in the basement or whatever <laughs> from her, really her voluminous museum uh, shrine. <laughs> seriously she's i mean it's not just me i mean she's on facebook with you know like all these people she grew up with both of my parents are actually from new jersey and um and they're all on facebook now and so someone will be like oh remember the gym uniforms that we had to wear and you know, like just to kind of get a, a laugh from people. And, and my mom goes into her basement, pulls hers out and takes a picture of it. And she's like, you mean this? You know, and like she, she's just like, has she's kept it all. Rat. Yeah, she's a pack rat. She, yeah, okay. yeah. Is it, is it, I like is to it, call it like an archivist. Okay. I mean, is it, this is, here's the difference. I can break this down for you. Is it, a, yeah. is, it a, is it a complete mess? Is it just in weird piles or is it like actually archived and organized? Mm. Okay. Well, I mean, it's actually, I would say somewhere in between. I mean, it's, she's not like a hoarder, you okay. know, and she's not, so. My, I, want like go, rest, I want you to go on the record as saying my mother is not a hoarder. <laughs> I think I just did. <laughs> um, so, you know, I mean, like the rest of her house looks, you know, clean and normal or whatever. But she, yeah, she keeps the stuff in the basement. But I, it, it, it may look like a mess to me, but like I know that she knows, you know, the fact that she can like dig, like someone mentions a gym outfit from 1957 and she can just go find it. Like that tells you there is some method to the madness. That's crazy. Yeah, there must be because like I feel I'm the opposite. Like I just want to throw everything away that I, like, yeah. I come into contact with. I don't care what it is. And like, the other day I was cleaning up the house and my daughter has this like art station in our place and she's three. And so it's like this big roll of like butcher paper on an easel and she can just draw and like, oh, yeah. she'll go through these phases where she's like, do you have kids? I do. I, and I remember the, the butcher paper on the easel. Okay. Days. Mine's older. Okay. Yeah. So, so you get it. So like she'll go through like a, you know, an hour where she'll make like 30 drawings. And so the other day I was like in a race yeah. to clean stuff up and, I, you know, she was standing there and I just like ripped off this like, you know, 40 foot long, um, you know, sheet of paper. I ball yeah. it up and I just like stuff it into the trash can. And then I look down and oh, she's, looking, Lord. she's looking at me and she goes, daddy, what are you doing? I was like, <laughs> I was like honey, we can't keep every single painting, you know? And, and oh I, God. And I, just, I just felt like an asshole. I was like, what am I, should I be more of a pack rat? Cause like, 
I, I am not sentimental, like, at all. Like, I don't want any of it. I'm not going to remember any of it. I don't remember a single drawing I ever did as a kid. I don't care, you know? Like, yeah. But some people, yeah. some people do. They like that stuff. They want the stuff. And, like, I just, I'm scared of yeah. stuff, man. I don't want any stuff. Yeah, I know. It, it, it can creep and it can take over your life. But I... But I have to say, you know, like not not wanting to keep stuff is different from this. I just can like imagine your daughter just going like, "My first memory is my dad crumpling up forty feet of my artwork just in front of coldly. my face." Just like just like like a bloodless, just done in like. <laughs> Not even the slightest bit of regret until I looked at her. But then, you know, I talked to her about it and, like, I picked her up and I took her over because we do have a couple of her drawings framed and hanging on yeah. the wall. And so I was like, sometimes there you go. I was like, see, we kept these because these were actually good. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I didn't say that. I didn't say that. These make you look like you might be talented. Um, <laughs> I, ju- I just, oh, yeah. yeah. So yeah. anyhow, you know, you run into these things and, uh, I, you know, I think that's fascinating that your mother, uh, you know, does this. And I also think that like having heard what you said about her, like craftiness, uh, yeah. I think that this is, I mean, it seems like that's the through line, you know, that's where it comes from. But mm-hmm. I, it's also something that I've either heard of or noticed in my life growing up, um, uh, particularly with women, you know, who mm-hmm. might not have had the opportunity um, to get out and be creative either because of some generational or gendered thing or because they made the decision to have children and be stay-at-home moms or whatever it is. Or, or they had to work a job and didn't have right. time to write a book, you know, or whatever it was. Right. So, um, but I feel like, uh, regardless of gender, that if you are somebody who is wired to be creative and to make stuff, uh, there's no yeah. stopping it. And it'll come out somehow. You know what I'm saying? Like, even, <laughs> Like mm-hmm. You might be like the best cupcake maker or you might be, um, yep. you know, I don't know what it is. You're doodling all day long or something, but like, it's like, it almost like it's, it's like it can't stay in your body. It's going to come out somehow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. I mean, I've got friends who, um, you know, just like know how to host a party. Right. And like every detail is like perfect and beautiful and appealing. And, and I don't mean in like, just the totally anal way. But I, I mean, like, they really know how to, like, do the whole spread in this, like, beautiful artistic way and make people feel welcome and create this great environment. And, um, you know, but they would probably not think of themselves as, you know, creative or artistic in any way. And yet it's something, like, I could never do. Uh, yeah, um, I'm, I'm, yeah, I think that's an awesome skill, like, when people have that, like, social grace, you know, and like that. Yeah. They can... They can um, I, you know, I guess like, you know, cause you're an introvert and, uh, you know, those kinds of things probably, uh, I've talked about this before on the show, but like, you know, people who are introverted, those kinds of social activities tend to deplete rather than energize. And it's not that you can't enjoy them. It's, yeah. just, it's just that like, by the time they're over, you're like, <laughs> you need to lie. Down. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, but no, I, like, I, I sort of, I'm, I'm amazed by people who have that sort of like elegant, like, you know, effortless, um, mm. way about them and they can just host and put everything yeah. together. And, and, and it's, you no. Know, the thing that I'm amazed by is, you know, A, that they can do it and then B, that they have fun doing it. <laughs> yeah, you I know. know. Totally. Right. Uh, I mean, I like to go to a party every once in a while, but like, it's just, you know, I don't know. I guess it's just a different skill set. Yeah, I know. I've talked with my mom about this. We, we noticed that we both, if we go to a party, we tend to plant ourselves in one spot and pretty much not move. So, you know, you just get like your comfort zone and, um, 
I could probably just go to a party and talk to one person the whole time and be pretty happy. Okay. Um, okay. Let me, let me, I feel like I'm the same way and I want to talk about something because I'm, I'm, I'm realizing it right now and I'm, I'm able to articulate it, but it feels like it's uh, slippery. <laughs> and if I don't say it right now, I'll lose it. <laughs> hurry, hurry. Yeah. But no, tell, like, tell me if this is not your experience at a party or a wedding or any kind of mass social gathering where the ratio of people that you know to people that you don't know um, mm-hmm. is like one to five or whatever. Like you might know a few people there, but it's a lot of people you don't know and you're at a wedding and you're, you know, whatever the case is. I was just at a party this past weekend. And what I find in these, in, in, in these gatherings is that um, you're walking around, you're talking to people and like whoever you wind up talking to in a large crowd, like it's going to continue. And then it's like, there becomes this awkward moment where you're like, is this person sick of talking to me? <laughs> like, right. Do they want, do they want to extract themselves and they can't? And then that starts going in my head and I'm like, Oh God, now we're, I'm just, I'm continuing to talk to this person. I can tell they just want to leave, but there's no, they're making like quick side eyes to try to find somebody to like leap out of the conversation and like, escape. Oh, the side eye. God. Do you know what I'm saying? Or it could be vice versa. Yeah. But like, I always like feel like yeah. that, that dynamic is quietly playing out where it's like, how do we make this end in a way that's graceful? How do we make this yeah. end in a way that doesn't feel offensive to either party? <laughs> how do I how do I get out of here? And then you like wind up having these like hour and a half long conversations, like, and you get stuck yeah. in that way. So it's almost like I think you need to stake out territory, sit down, and let people move around you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that's what I'm saying. Like in sort of like the standing in one place, I, I I'm not necessarily talking to the same person the whole time. I mean, although I probably could, but. Um, yeah, like there's just this rotation, but I feel sort of comfortable with it. But um, yeah, but you're totally right. That sort of like figuring out with someone. Okay, how long do we want to be talking to each other? When do you need to? We should just have a timer. On. There should just be like a, yeah. a, a fifteen minute timer, and it should just go off on your iPhone or something. And then everybody's got to rotate like musical chairs or something. <laughs> uh, but for me, it's always like, I'm always like, they clearly want to leave. I feel bad that I'm keeping them there. And, you know, I don't know. I got Yeah. I, I, I envy people who can make those like, you know, uh, effortless segues, you know, where it's like so great talking to yeah. you. And they like, you know, I'm not good at those segues. Yeah, no, me neither. Because I, 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 I'm also sort of like afraid to end it because then I'm going to have that turn where I turn into empty space and like have to figure <laughs> out the next place to go. <laughs> That's really scary. Or, uh, yeah, or like you know, like you turn and then like you need something to do, so you take a drink from your like you know glass of wine, but it, like but it's empty, and you're like, why am I drinking out of an empty glass? This is right. Yeah, but need, then, hey, something to do, get a refill. <laughs> Make some shadow puppets. I'm just gonna do some shadow puppets over here. Entertain myself. Right. Um, right. Okay, so to get back to your writing life, to get back to your writing. Life, speaking of yeah. effort, speaking of effortless segues, let's go from shadow puppets to your writing life. <laughs> Uh, so when it comes to, you know, you, you get into this teaching job, you're doing this writer's group, you're doing these exercises with your students. Um, like I, I am imagining that you were beginning to, uh, work in a quote unquote professional manner at this point, like starting to develop a discipline and to think of yourself in terms of publication. Um, no, not yet. (laughs) We're not to that part of the story yet. (laughs) Take take us there, Casey. It's a slow story. Well, if we started with the, you know, the athlete years, that that really set us back a bit. But, um, you know, I mean, I really, I mean, I think I was maybe even a later bloomer than, you know, we originally discussed. Um, I spent my 20s um, teaching for several years at this high school and um, I had my daughter, 
who just turned 17 on Friday. Um, so she was, um, so she was little then and I'm, you know, I'm teaching and I'm got a baby and I'm thinking about, I mean, I start I started going like doing classes, like taking classes, um, community ed art classes, like drawing and figure painting and, calligraphy and photography and I took writing classes at the university but it was all just sort of you know whatever I could do um, in my time in in my free time which didn't feel like there was much of that and you know don't forget my my football league you know (laughs) while I was catching in between catching touchdowns and like raising an infant child I was drawing naked people Um, (laughs) and um, so anyway when uh, when she was a few years old, I finally um, was like ready to transition out of high school teaching and ready to um, transition into graduate school. And so I didn't even really, I mean, I didn't really have a sense of how to think of myself as a writer. I knew I wanted to do it and, I, and I'd been doing some, you know, just at home, but, um, and in these classes and groups and whatever. But, um, I mean, it was really grad school that helped me understand what, uh, it might even look like to be a writer, um, and to do that sort of as like a major part of my life. So, so wait, um, graduate school was university of Cincinnati. Yeah. Yeah. And you got your, um, you got your I, PhD. Yep. Yeah. And I actually, I mean, I started with my master's degree, so, and I did it back to back. So I was actually there for six years and, um, um, you know, but they, it was just great. I mean, you know, there they would, I, I mean, I met all these other people who had similar pursuits. I didn't have these people in my life as a mom or as a high school teacher, you know, people who were imagining themselves as writers. Um, and, uh, so suddenly I'm in this culture and I'm around these people and, you know, and then there's, these great event series, bringing in authors and getting to meet people and then just, like you know, who? working with my, um, like Lori Moore, like Jane Smiley, um, like, uh, I can't, uh, Claire Massoud. Um, okay. So you, and you I mean, got they, to, you got to interact with these people as a, as a MFA student. Yeah. Yeah. They, they would come in and give readings. Um, but there would be these, you know, the, the parties afterwards or dinner before or drinks before. And that was one of the nice things was that we were able as students to go and, you know, like, you know, go have dinner with Lori Moore. You had dinner, uh, you had dinner with her. I've been trying to get her on the podcast, but she won't respond to my email. Oh, well, yeah. I'm sure she's, yeah, I'm I did. Sure she's getting, I'm sure she's getting lots of requests. <laughs> I imagine that she is. I'm deeply deeply offended, by the way. Oh, well, I'm sure she's listening to to this right now, too. (laughs) No doubt. No doubt. She actually, it was funny. She, um, when she came, she gave a reading from the beginning of her novel, um, what was it, The Gate of the Stairs? And, And it was not published yet. I mean, this was like, well, it was really pretty early in the process. And, um, but it was the beginning, and it's pretty much exactly the beginning that ended up in it. And um, and then I saw her. That was in probably like 2002, and then in 2012 or so, she gave a reading um, at Notre Dame University or University of Notre Dame up the road. And I went to that, and she read the exact same thing. And I'm 
so horrible that I actually told her that I heard that thing. Like, I was like, I heard that 10 years ago. <laughs> and I didn't mean it in a bad way. I was just, I was actually like super excited that I had heard it so early on. And like, here was the finished, you know, product. And, you know, here, can you sign my copy? And, and she was, you know, sort of mortified as I would have been if I, you know, if I would have thought of it, I probably wouldn't have said it, but I just, I thought it was cool. No, it's like, you know what it is? You know what it is? Like as a parallel experience, it's like when you, when you're talking to your friend and you're like, yeah, let's go see this band. And you're like, oh, I used to see that band at a small club like 10 years ago. (laughs) I I heard, I heard Lori Moore read a gate at the stairs and you know, yeah, 2002. Yeah. Um, so, okay. And, and did you ever have an experience where you met one of these authors and you might've had some sort of preconception of them through their work and then they came to school and you're at like some sort of like a cocktail party for them and you find that the, the reality, uh, and the, you know, the idea of them heading into it were at odds with one another. Um, you know, yes, but it was almost always in a positive way. Like I would sort of assume they would be too cool for school, you know, unwilling to speak to us lowly graduate students or, you know, just disinterested or whatever. And pretty much everybody was like just really nice and willing to talk to us and seemingly glad to be there. Um, I think, you know, the only one who sort of what that, that rubbed me the wrong way after I met her was Jane Smiley. Um, she, and she's a super tall woman. She's like six, two or three. That's why um, she looked at you and she's like, Hey, this, this girl's tall. <laughs> Don't you compete with me? Oh. <laughs> that's right. You know, well, that's a funny thing because, like, you know, generally I, I sort of wish I were maybe like an inch or two shorter, like still tall, but not, you know, still, but, but so I could wear heels, you know, and, and or something. But, um, but I'll tell you what, whenever I'm around other tall women, I do get very competitive and I like stretch myself up really high and I'm like, are they taller than I am? And I like make people around me tell me like, no, no, you, Kelsey, you're you, taller. You like, you force yourself to yawn just to like demonstrate wingspan. Exactly. Or like I, you know, I, I find an excuse to walk over near them so someone can, you know, look at me and tell me if I'm taller. <laughs> Uh, but anyway, I was definitely not taller than Jane Smiley, and um, I don't know. She just, I, she just, for whatever reason, um, you know, she came and was talking about how uh, I think it was related to a Harper's article she'd written about how she doesn't like Huck Finn, and you know, she kind of like got into it with some people about Huck Finn, and she was like, basically, like, I'm Jane Smiley, I can say whatever I want about Huck Finn, and. Um, and I don't know. She just was like, not, just not interested in speaking to us graduate students, but whatever. Yeah. You know, some people, maybe she was just having a bad day. It's like, it's interesting when you think about writers, uh, as a, as a group of people, you know, broadly speaking, I think that we're, yeah. we're a pretty good bunch. Um, you, you know, I mean, I don't know. I feel like writers, yeah, yeah. writers, writers tend to be pretty self-effacing and, I, um, pretty kind and, and maybe humbler than uh, artists of achievement in other realms might be broadly speaking. Yeah. And I, yeah. I, you know, and maybe I'm wrong. That's just my sense of it. And I'm thinking maybe that's because, um, you know, there's so much failure that goes into writing. Uh, not, that yeah. there's, not that there's not failure in other forms of art. I don't mean to make it sound like, you know, so special, but I really do think that like, it breeds humility maybe more than other art forms. But um, that, that, you know, on the other side of the coin, I think that like, you know, artists who are writers who are not so nice or who do fall into, you know, egomania 
Um, mm-hmm. You know, it can be a particularly acute form where you're like so in love with your own intellect and your own, you know. Yeah. I don't know. I just, it's interesting to me. Like when, uh, when writers, maybe I should write an essay called when writers are assholes or something. <laughs> Try to break this down. Why does it happen? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I know. But I, mean, I, I think, I, I guess another question is like, why did I assume they would all be assholes? And, you know, and then was just sort of pleasantly surprised when everyone was just kind of like nice and human. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, and, well, I mean, I, th- I think like, uh, like it's it's interesting to me because like doing this show, like one of the stories that I always tell when I talk about this with people, um, which is constantly, by the way, <laughs> every party, that's what I open with. Uh, but no, but I, you know, I'll be talking about guests and how, you know, who I've talked to and what it's, what's been memorable. And like, one of the things that I, I will always remember is how nervous I was to talk to George Saunders because he was like the biggest author that I'd talked to. Uh, yeah. and, and may still be and like how he was like the nicest guy like uh-huh. you know and i was like oh shit like i got off the phone and i was like that was you know i was nervous wreck before that one and it was completely easy and you know i've had uh conversations with authors of lesser stature or success or whatever you want to call it who have been much more difficult um but yeah you know on the whole it's been um it's been pretty easy i don't know i you know i don't want to poo-poo writers i feel like we're a good bunch but yeah, no, I, I think so too. And a friend of mine, um, like one of my Facebook writer friends, um, he had George Saunders, I think, come to the university and give a reading or whatever. But um, but he had a picture after that of George Saunders, like playing in his front yard with his with his this guy's young daughter, and like that just says all you need to know about George Saunders, that he would come and play with someone else's kid on the yard yeah, no, during yeah. an author visit, you know? I think everybody who, like, I mean, I, I've heard it over and over again, you know, with people who uh, meet him. He's just a nice person. <laughs> yeah. Well, and that's his thing, right? I mean, that was his whole, like, uh, graduation address, commencement speech was all about just kindness, like, be kind to one another, you know? Well, but, that's you know, I, mean, he- I, 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 I say that to myself sometimes because, like, it can get really difficult um, – like maybe unnecessarily so is the point, you know, when you start to think about, yeah. issues, when you start, start to think about issues of morality or spirituality or like, how should I, you know, how should I be in the world and what's going on and am I doing the right thing and blah, blah, blah. And how do I, you know, relationships and everything else. And it's like, you know what, just start every day and just like, be kind, just try to do mm-hmm. that as long as mm-hmm. you know, to the best of your ability within whatever context you find yourself in. Um, yeah. I, you know, I, sh- I would probably do well to, find a way to formalize that in my life yeah <laughs> maybe maybe a tattoo maybe a tattoo on my forehead in backwards letters you know so i can look in the mirror and see it every day or something but yeah yeah I, you know um i gave up on new year's resolutions a while ago but i i like to have a little command for myself for each year something that i just sort of repeat to myself that can apply to pretty much any context and um I have not had that one, but that remind that that is like a good one that might be, you know, one that comes for me in the future. Um, but uh, so like this year, it's be mindful, which maybe it's because it sort of rhymes <laughs> being kind. Um, <laughs> Next year it can be kindful or something. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and I should say this year is actually mindful-ish because there's a whole you know there's the whole bit of mindfulness that's all about breathing and the moment and I get I have too much of like a western logical approach to it I'm like 
but I still have to plan and I still have to, you know, right. uh, so I just want to plan things mindfully and, um, you know, and, and also so sort of like enjoy the moment, but also sort of plan well for other moments. Well, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you can do everything because I'm like, are you a meditator? I'm a meditator. So I'm totally all, I'm all up into that stuff. Um, oh, nice. Yeah. See, no, I, I'm not. Okay. Um, but like I, but I feel like I'm intrigued by it more and especially as I get older, I guess. Um, and so for me, just, I mean, and maybe it's like a mini, mini meditation. I mean, but for me just to like pause and like realize that I'm breathing and focus on that for like 15 seconds is as close as I get, but that's something. That, that's it. I mean, yeah. I mean, I think it's just trying to stay awake, you know, because yeah. I don't know about you, but like the voice in my head is just like insane. And uh, yeah. not, not, in, not insane in terms of like, it's always saying insane things or it's like ranting like a loony person, but just, right, just insane right. in its, in its, uh, in its, um, nonstopness. What's the yeah. word? I'm, what's the word, word I'm looking for? Nonstopness. You know what I mean? <laughs> It's 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 yeah. inset constant. yeah constant the incessant constant, yeah yeah the incessant chatter in my head and so trying to kind of separate from that and just like watch it as opposed to like living it or being it or you know just being completely yeah. immersed in it is a a healthy exercise I, I I would like to think yeah yeah totally so okay so publication um, mm -hmm. I want to ask you about like you know like getting from apprentice years to actually getting yourself in print. And then before I let you go, I also want to ask you about Frank Lloyd Wright because <laughs> you clearly have an interest. Uh, and I'd be, you know, just be curious to know how you, you know, got hooked into that. So yeah. first, first of all, getting published, like how did you go from grad student to published author? Yeah. Um, I, I just started, yeah, I, I don't know. I just started writing and, started to sort of learn about the world of literary journals and started submitting my work and getting rejected and getting rejected again and submitting some more and getting rejected again. <laughs> I mean, you know, so it was, I mean, but it was within the, the culture and context of graduate school where, again, you know, this is what, what people did. And I came to sort of see that world. And it's a good reminder to me, you know, when I talk to my students who, always seem so baffled by the writing world or whatever that, you know, like I didn't know what it was all about either. So, I mean, it was, so it was really just like the traditional way of like getting in grad school and writing and setting stuff out and, um, you know, starting to get some publications, um, of short stories mostly. And then, um, you know, and then sort of having enough of them to start thinking, about whether they would work together as a book, um, starting to um, shop them at shop the manuscript to um, independent publishers, and you know, and even that went through a few years of like different versions of the manuscript of the short story collection, um, different, um, you know, some stories in, some stories out. I'd write a new story, put the new story in, take something else out, whatever, you know, so it was, it was really evolving and I was probably sending it out a little bit prematurely, but then, you know, but then ultimately feeling like, okay, now it's kind of coming together. Um, and, you know, and finding a press that was interested in it and, um, working with the editor there to, um, I mean, she finally, she helped me really like think through which stories. I mean, I, I gave her a few more than, ended up in the book. Um, and, 
uh, you know, so really <laughs> the old fashioned long, hard road of it. Sure. Know? Well, I mean, that's, I mean, it's, I think it's common. I think I, it's rare that it's, yeah. any, it's rare that it's anything, but, and, um, yeah. you know, did you, and you automatically went, uh, directly to indie presses or did you ever try to go to a big house with the collection or did you know well enough to just say, I probably have a better chance of getting this in print if I start with indie since it's a collection or. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I thought that was what I figured, but, um, it's not only a short story collection. It's a little, um, I don't know. It's, it's got some quirky elements, um, to it that I, I wasn't sure would be, uh, a mainstream kind of, you know, cause some story collections do get picked up. I just, I didn't know that this would be one of them. So, um, yeah. So, and I, and plus it's also like a control thing, I guess. Like I like the idea of, you know, just me being able to present it. And, um, <clears throat> I mean, not that an agent, you know, wouldn't have been lovely for it, but, um, uh, so are you, yeah, do you but, like, are you control? Are you like control? I mean, not that all, all writers do to an extent, but like, is that yeah, like, is that I, a thing? No, no, I guess it's not. I mean, um, I, I feel actually pretty chill about a lot of things, but um, maybe less chill about that, <laughs> perhaps about my writing in the collection. But um, yeah, anyway, so yeah, I, I, and and I also um, my dissertation, my it was at Cincinnati. They have the um, sort of PhD in creative writing, right, where you can do a creative dissertation. So I was actually working on a novel for that. And, um, that I, I did plan to sort of send agents and try to, um, and actually was doing it for a while. Um, and that was probably a little bit premature too, but, um, well, or a lot, I should say, but, um, but at some point I just stopped with that. And this was after graduate school when I had moved up here. And I, I was like, you know what, I, I bet my story collection is more ready to go than that, you know? And so I, I sort of switched gears and instead of trying to, to get an agent for the novel, I decided to go for the um, short story collection. And then, you know, the novel has languished a bit just cause I keep writing other stuff. And I did this, um, this Frank Lloyd Wright novella. And um, yeah, how did, how did that happen? Like with Frank Lloyd Wright, like what, what is that? Yeah. What, what chipped off your interest? I'm assuming you've been to falling water. Yeah, well, going there was what did it. I, um, I mean, I'd seen, I, I, I knew almost nothing about it. I didn't know where it was in the country. I, I, basically, where, all I knew is it in Pennsylvania. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, it's about an hour south of Pittsburgh. Okay. Um, in this, I mean, the closest town is a couple miles away, and the population of that town is seventy-five. Um, so it's really remote and, um, it was like this, it was like a weekend country retreat for the Kaufman family who owned this department store in Pittsburgh, um, which is now a Macy's, um, the, the original downtown store. Well, the whole, actually all of them, they have some suburban, um, ones too that are also now Macy's, but, um, uh, but they would, their employees would go out to this land, um, and this was before Falling Water, the, the house was built. Um, but they would go and they would like play on the in and around the waterfall, and they would. Um, it was like this whole camp area with these cabins, and people could stay. And 
the workers, um, especially the women workers, could get away for a weekend um, and just get some, you know, fresh country air. Um, I, love how they, I love how they used to do that back in the day. Like they would take a cure and like get air yeah. for like whatever illness. It was just like whatever, however sick you were. It was like, oh, you have cancer? Like go get some air. You need some air. Right. <laughs> yes, yes. So that was what they did. And then um, – and then the depression hit, and and fewer people were able to make the trip, and the and the train stopped doing the the even that uh, trip anymore. So, um, so eventually the Coffin family just sort of took the land, and they were like, let's build a country house, and <laughs> let's hire a famous architect to do it. They always were hiring famous architects for their houses, for their store, and Franklin Wright was pretty old at the time. He was. 69 or so when the commission came in so you know he could have just been totally washed up and he ended up having another like 25 years of you know that included like the Guggenheim and stuff um so but anyway that doesn't tell you how I got there <laughs> sort of <laughs> diverted into the, the story of it but um but the fact is that that spot south of Pittsburgh is a perfect halfway point between um, the Jersey Shore, where I have family, and South Bend, Indiana, where I live. And um, so it was just a matter of like breaking up a 12-hour trip into two six-hour um, driving increments and um, staying there, uh, just, just kind of wanting to stop at some, you know, it was it was sort of random. I mean, like, almost chosen from the car, just like, what about here? Should we go here? And, um, and I saw that the, the, that the quote unquote Frank Lloyd Wright house was there. And there was actually another one there too. And I was like, huh, I didn't realize that was there. I mean, I, so I just vaguely knew of it. And then just on the way out of town, did a tour of the house. And, um, is it amazing? Is it amazing I, in person? Yeah, it's, it is really amazing. I mean, um, in, in my book, I have, you know, a, at least one character who sort of acknowledges that it's maybe sort of smaller or uglier than one might think. And I think, you know, I think some people might sort of think that. Um, but people say the, the same thing about me. <laughs> I kid. Yeah. So I, I don't know. I just what it, it was. It is pretty amazing. And I just was instantly like captivated by it. And, um, I mean, my, my book of short stories is very invested in, I mean, it's called for sale by owner and it's very invested in like domestic spaces and, um, I don't, I don't know, just houses in general I'm just interested in. And, um, so I'm, I don't know, I was going through the house uh, on the tour and I just was like, I have to write a story set here. You know, like I just knew I wanted to write something set here set there and um and I started thinking about it and I was like and it's going to be a domestic tragedy and so you know I had these grand thoughts in my mind and um and basically when you're on the tour um what's what's really cool about Falling Water is that um the Kaufman family's um books are all lining the walls their artwork is on the walls their furniture is in the house I mean a lot of Franklin Wright houses are just kind of gutted and you know, there's just like it's the structure is amazing, but there's no sense of people having lived there. And so, you know, they talk on the tour a bit about the Kaufmans. I mean, I had no idea who'd commissioned the house or anything right. about it. But right. um, so I got kind of interested in, you know, what they were all about. And um, 
and when I got home from the tour and and from the trip and just started like reading up on falling water, I mean, I pretty quickly learned that a domestic tragedy had in fact already taken place there. Um, Ooh, interesting. Say, yeah. Yeah. That, um, so the couple, the Kaufman, um, Lillian and Edgar Kaufman, who had commissioned it, um, they just had a tumultuous marriage and he had a number of affairs and, um, I mean, they were in like the wealthy set of Pittsburgh, and so it was all kind of public and, you know, had a child outside of their marriage um, and uh, and then ultimately ended up with a, a, a girlfriend who was like half his age, who was his nurse. And that pretty much put Lily on, the wife, kind of over the edge, and, um, and she overdosed in her bedroom at Falling Water. And... Um, she died on the way to the hospital in Pittsburgh, but, um, and whether it was like an on purpose overdose or not is not entirely clear, but she OD'd on painkillers. And, um, and I kind of, I dramatize that. I open with that in the book and, um, and kind of, um, you know, I don't, I don't know if she did it on purpose or not, but, um, but anyway, I mean, just the fact that this has already had already happened, and of course, you know, they don't tell you about it on the tour. It's not really like what they want to bring up <laughs> if you're, where you're standing st- in her room, <laughs> where you're standing right now. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that gives me yeah. The, that gives me the chills though. Like, I think that that sort of thing creatively, like those kinds of synchronicities between like intuitive or instinctive creative ideas and like what happened, what actually happened in real life. Yeah. You know, where you don't even know, like you didn't even know that that had happened, but yet you're standing yeah. in that house thinking like domestic tragedy. Like, I think there's yeah. something, there's something to that, you know, that, that is, that I'm unable to, uh, articulate. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. No, I know. I, I, I think it's, it is part of the weird, the sort of magic of the creative process. I mean, yeah, I, I don't, I mean. Are you psychic? Yeah. Do you have any kind of like contact with the spirits or anything? <laughs> No, but, um, but I think, uh, you know, but I do, I have a, um, one of the characters is a, um, so I kind of, I alternate in the book between um, Lillian Kaufman's, you know, elements of her life and narrative, and then the alternating chapters have four modern day tourists who are going through the house that are all sort of like at these sort of crisis moments in their own lives. And one of the um, one of those characters is a 12 year old girl who, um, the, and my daughter was 12 when I first visited falling water. And, uh, so I think that that fed into it a bit, but, um, but the 12 year old girl character does have some ghostly encounters while she is there. Um, both, both with her future, <laughs> with with someone she has not even met yet, who she will fall in love with in the future, and then, um, and then, the ghost of Lillian um, briefly appears. So, wow, well, it sounds fascinating, and uh, <laughs> I, uh, I, it sounds like kind of like spooky and cool. I don't know. I like the, uh, I like the idea of somehow like I'm, I'm feeling like the ghost of Lillian was involved in you writing this book. I'm just going to go out there on a limb and say that. Am I wrong? I like it. I think she could have been. I'll neither confirm nor deny. Okay. Well, it's been really fun talking with you uh, and fun talking with your ex-husband as well. I should say. (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad I got a chance. Thank you for calling us both. (laughs) Yeah, I'm glad I got a chance to speak with both of you. And uh, I congratulate you on the book and wish you well on whatever is next.
thank you. Unfortunately, I feel like I'm kind of losing you right now. You you disappeared into an echo chamber, but um, no, but thank I, you so much. I really enjoyed talking to you too. I'm still here. Am I in the echo chamber? Oh no, you're back. Oh, I am. Okay. <laughs> well, let's say our goodbye now. Bye, Kelsey. Okay. Okay. Bye, Brad. Thank you. All right. Okay. Okay. For real? Yeah, we're done. <laughs> All right, you guys, there you go. That is Kelsey Parker. Go get her novella. It's called Lillian's Balcony. It's available now from Rose Metal Press. You can find her online at KelseyParker.com. And uh, don't forget to go get your free audio book from Audible. To do that, just visit AudibleTrial.com slash other people. Again, that's AudibleTrial.com slash other people. Thanks to Kill Rockstars for all the great music as always. Be sure to check out KillRockstars.com. And don't forget to go get the free Other People app and to sign up for premium. That way you can dig into the archives, okay? So, uh, yeah. Creative struggles. I'm figuring myself out. It's not a round peg, round hole situation. That's what, I've, uh, that's what I'm arriving at. Whatever it is that I'm going to write and publish is probably not going to mesh entirely with uh, like preconceived notions of what traditional models are. <laughs> if that makes sense. Um, what I mean to say is it's going to be a little weird. It's going to be a little bit uh, idiosyncratic and personal. And that's it. And I should also say that it's about talent. It's about discovering what you're good at and coming to grips with what uh, you're maybe not quite as good at. That's a part of it. I mean, I, like I might be able to write some fiction. I've done it before. But uh, I think what I, I really prefer uh, is nonfiction. That's my tendency. Maybe it'll change. I don't know. Uh, it's just where I am right now. It's a fluid process. Please remember that Vaslav Nijinsky died of kidney failure after uh, decades of insanity and that Edvard Munch's sister went mad. That is it for now. Thanks to Kelsey Parker. Go get her book. Thanks to Rose Metal Press. And uh, I will be back in touch with you shortly with another episode from an, uh, another writerly bookish human person. Okay? That's all. You can turn this off now. It's over. It's done. Goodbye. Seriously, goodbye.